thing that came before this big establishment of Christianity. We're talking about the process of discipleship. And we're going to be continuing to talk about it for the rest of the month in a series on discipleship. And in particular, this morning, we're talking about what discipleship really is. It's important for Christians because Jesus told everybody who would follow him to go and make disciples. It was a part of his life, his marching orders to all followers of Jesus ever. He says, go and make disciples. It was literally the last thing he said before he ascended up to heaven. And because Jesus gave this command to anybody who would ever follow after him, the mission of every Christian church around the world is actually the same. We all share in this mission, what they call the great co-mission. And since we all share it, and it goes right back to the source, we have to wonder why it is that there's still so much confusion about it. Why would I, why would I need to spend a whole month talking about discipleship if it's such a fundamental thing that we should all understand it easily? Periodically, I try to imagine what it would be like to hear the things that Christians say. Like, I grew up in a Christian home in a church and, and lots of churches and, and I have I just it's a part of who I am, right? And I think I think disciple has to be kind of a weird one. If you're if you've never been exposed to any of the things that I was exposed to, didn't grow up the way I did, I think disciple would be a weird word. For starters, there's lots of kinds of disciples, right? So Buddha has disciples, you can be a disciple of Confucianism. Hinduism, Jainism, the Baha'i faith has disciples. They all have followers. Did you know that you can even be a disciple of yoga? I didn't know that, but you can. Because I, I learned it on Wikipedia, so maybe you can't, but I'm pretty sure you can. But with so many disciples out there, I think it's hard to know what Christians mean when they talk about disciples or discipleship. For instance, I would have no idea what a disciple of Jainism would be like. What would they look like? How would they act? Who was one? Who wasn't one? I couldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to look around and say, "Disciple, not disciple. Disciple, not disciple." Necessarily, there'd be a few things that might stand out, but I have no idea what that means. In fact, even growing up in church, having gone to Bible school, having even been a pastor, I still feel a need for added clarity about what Christians are talking about when they talk about discipleship. Our whole board just recently spent a whole afternoon discussing a five-year discipleship pathway and how to do that inside of this church. It was our board and our leadership. This is such a central thing. because, And it confuses us, right? Because sometimes when Christians talk about disciples, we're talking about the 12 disciples. Or, you know, and these are the people that followed Christ around all the time. We're familiar with the 12 disciples. Or we're talking about ourselves as disciples. In fact, churches now use disciple as a verb, it's something that you can do to other things, <laughs> typically other people, which is something that we actually want to do really well here at this church. Is we want to be able to disciple others. But some churches have gone like off the rails bonkers about this, and they're just discipling everything in sight. You like literally cannot walk your dog with one of these people without somebody trying to disciple your dog. And you're like, is your dog discipling my dog? Or is like, how did it's just got confusing because. People have muddied the waters. Everybody's talking about it. It means less and less, right? Um, so it seems a safe bet this morning that if I'm having a hard time pinning down that definition of discipleship, most of us are going to be sharing in a similar frustration, which is why this upcoming series is so important to us, because this is one of our core identifying factors as followers of Jesus, as disciples. This is who we are. 
And in this church, the process of discipleship is already, as I mentioned, a pretty central part of our mission statement. It's right in the thing that we say we're all about, right? Just like it is in churches around the world. But just because it's posted on our webpage or put up on our on our mission statement doesn't necessarily mean that we all understand it or that it's even making any real difference in our lives. Even if I do an awesome job up here and I get you out on time, that's a qualify. I know what the, the qualifications of me doing awesome are. If I do an awesome job and get you out on time, and if I really, you know, deliver the, the best sermon of all time and you really connect with the music and the coffee is great and you get to catch up with some friends that you haven't seen in a while, you will eventually walk away from all of this if you don't understand discipleship well. You will. You'll walk away from it. And, and I'm not going to hold it against you because at your core, you're just like I am. And at the core of who you are, you're a pragmatist. You don't need another social outing. What you need is something that works. What you need is something that makes a difference. And that's exactly where discipleship comes in. How we understand this thing makes the big difference. Discipleship is is the connecting point between who you are and how you act. If you're going to allow discipleship to make any difference in your life, I think it's a good idea for us to first come to an understanding of what it is, of what the Bible says that discipleship is. For sure, husbands need to understand this. I know I do as a husband. I need to understand discipleship, and it plays into my marriage relationship in a big way. And wives, even if your husbands won't admit to it, they need you to figure out discipleship as well. I don't know how many times Ray has reminded me of, of what a big deal Christ is as, as I'm going through a particular situation or, or how, what the truth of the Bible is or what Christ tells me is true about my life rather than the anxieties that I'm believing. I need to be, in, in that way, discipled, taught what the truth of the scriptures are. I need to help responding to these things. It's a very important thing. High schoolers, you need to understand discipleship. In fact, high schools are one of the places that discipleship is most needed and where it works best just because of the amount of time y'all spend in relationship with each other. It's a unique and privileged opportunity to be able to spend all of those hours and hours and hours getting to know people, walking alongside of them, getting to know their struggles. I, I, I found after I left high school, I did not have nearly the, the depth of friendship that I had experienced while I was in high school. And I think it's because I just spent so much time around them. I had significant opportunities in those relationships. That's a big deal. And, and we have an opportunity to make a big difference in our schools. If you're a parent, discipleship offers you opportunities to raise your kids in a radically new way, to think about how, how you're going to respond to them and, and how that respond, re, response reflects Christ. My own parenting has been radically bent and altered and, and, and molded around this example that Christ has given us. It's calling me away from something and into something new, something where I see a lot more hope and a lot more opportunity. Discipleship is offering us a way to engage life in a new way. If you're facing retirement or you're already tired, retired, <laughs> or tired, <laughs> I'm tired, but I'm not retired. <laughs> what you do or what you used to do may begin to feel a lot less important than who's around you and the relationships that you're in and the way that you're, able, you're called and able now to respond to those relationships in a new way. Discipleship is offering all of us a way to engage the next 
stage of life. It's offering us an opportunity for growth and movement uh, toward likeness with Christ. But you don't have to wait for retirement to get started on all of that. For all of us, discipleship offers us a life of good and great significance. To do this, to understand discipleship as it's really meant to be, we're going straight to the source. We're going to spend the next couple weeks talking about um, and taking a good look at what discipleship is, what, what the Bible means when they say discipleship, how they're defining it, and what that's all about. We're all here. We're all sitting here right now. And if we're going to do this thing, then we might as well know what we're signing up for, right? We might as well know either what we have signed up for and what we're trying to be a part of, or know what we're going to get into. And that's the big deal this morning. So like I said, when you look into the Bible, discipleship has been a part of the church since the very beginning. When we read the letters that the earliest Christians were writing back and forth to each other, we see that they use two different words that will translate for us as discipleship. One is mathetes, I think that's how you say it, which means learner or apprentice, and the other is akolotheo, which is the ancestor word of our word acolyte or follower. It just has the same meaning, like this devotee, right? Together, those words are used 370 times in the New Testament. It is a big deal in the New Testament. Now, not every time that they mention that word are they talking about one of Christ's, say, 12 disciples or even a, a disciple of Christ. They're talking about followers of any kind of way. So the Pharisees were following the way of the law and the rules and all these things, and, and you could follow anything. So they use discipleship essentially in the same way that we use it. Just like there's lots of disciples of Jainism, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever, today, there were lots of disciples back in Jesus' day as well. Lots more than just the 12 that we know best. Looking just at the 12 can actually be a little bit confusing for us because the 12 disciples are also referred to as the 12 apostles. And while okay, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Okay, now... Don't, don't let me lose you here, okay? Just stay, stay with me for a little bit. We're not going to go into a long thing on this, but here's what I mean. Apostles, they mean the sent ones, and they were a special kind of thing, right? And so not all of us are called to be apostles. So the definition of how we look at those 12 disciples, some of that stuff's not going to apply. So they were the sent ones chosen by Christ to proclaim and establish his specific message, which was that the kingdom of God had come, and then they were given power and authority to carry out that mission. They had a special role in the early church. Not that, not, not a role that every disciple of Christ was going to share in. So to clarify this, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church of Corinth, who, and Paul, by the way, was formerly a disciple of the Pharisees and later on a disciple of Jesus, he brings a little bit of clarity to the whole apostle-disciple confusion. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the whole body of Christ. So we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. And he talks about the whole body of Christ. Again, which would be anybody who is a follower or a disciple of Jesus was a part of this body. And they were made up of many parts. The church is arguing about these gifts because they feel that some are more important than other parts. And, you know, everybody wants to be the one that has the awesome gift. And not everybody does. And so Paul says this. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, he says, God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. 
are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all work miracles? Do all have, sorry, I already said that. Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And then Paul launches into this really beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about love being the greater gift, which we don't have time to get into. But what Paul is showing us by listing all these various roles is that there's not one kind of disciple. You can't, you can't cookie cutter that person and say, you're going to look exactly the same. All disciples are not going to look the same. And so disciple is up here, apostle is down here. Does that make sense to everybody? So all these 12 apostles are, are all disciples first and apostles kind of second, right? And, the, and they're very important for the, the building up of the church. But all of us who would say we want to follow Christ are called to be disciples. Okay? Every disciple, as Paul would point out, has the ability, which is the power and authority, if you will, to be able to love others and enter into a relationship with the world around them in a radically new way, which is a defining characteristic of every follower of Christ. What more miraculous thing could the world experience? Now, they were experiencing lots of miracles, for sure, and surely the other gifts would give credibility to the, to the authority of that message that they were proclaiming, but the message is the same, and the message is what matters the most. Does that make sense? The message is, 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 is the center of all of this. So they're doing signs and wonders and miracles, and it's all pointing forward to this message that Christ is bearing. This is what I mean. Often in the Bible, people were convinced of the authority of Christ's message after experiencing healings or other miraculous things, right? Other miraculous occurrences. So they'd see somebody get up and walk. They'd see a lame man get up and walk, and they go, oh, man. I want to know what this thing is all about. They'd respond to that. And this is because the Old Testament predicted that when the Messiah, the Savior of the world, came, that the lame would walk and the blind would see. This is, what, this is how you would know that you were dealing with this dude, was these things would start to happen, which is why when John the Baptist is in prison and he gets word that Jesus is performing some of these miracles or what he calls the deeds of the Messiah, Excuse me. He sends one of his disciples to ask Jesus if Jesus is the one to come or if he should expect somebody else. And so when Jesus receives this messenger from John, he says to him, he says, go back and tell John what you hear and see. Those things which were just plain, obvious. It was right in front of him. It was happening before him. Go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the all of that was to demonstrate to the awaiting Jewish audience that Jesus was, in fact, this person that they had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for. He was the Messiah that they needed. The deeds of the Messiah were not his great contribution. They were pointing to his great contribution. They were signs that he came in power and that he had the authority to bring in a new kingdom and to build a new life, a new way of life for all of us. Now. Those things were pointing to that, to this radical new uh, reality that was going to become available for humanity. They were pointing us to the person of Jesus who would be this Messiah. They knew that he would come in power, right? The, the Jews expected this Messiah. They had waited thousands of years 
for this Messiah to come. It was such a such a big, big deal for them that, that Jesus was here, and they were seeing these signs, and they were naturally taken up by it. They were excited by it. They thought, um, they thought he would become a king that would overthrow Rome, and, and they knew that he would do away with death, and thereby himself would probably be immortal. They had these really big expectations for the for the Messiah, which is why all of Jesus' followers, all of his disciples, more than just the 12, were super bummed when the Messiah gets crucified. When Jesus hangs on the cross and, and his dead body is put away into that tomb, this is a huge blow to anybody who would follow after Christ because they knew that those signs and wonders, those miracles and all those things only mattered if he was this person. These are the same disciples who Luke wrote about, who had been given the power to heal other people. These disciples had done that healing. They had done these miraculous deeds themselves. Christ had given them power. He had sent them out, and they were casting out demons, and they were healing people. And they were doing many of the same miraculous things that Jesus himself had done. They not only saw it, but they did it with their own hands. It happened on their watch. So naturally, when Jesus is sentenced to death and his body succumbs to this thing, and they seal him away in that tomb, they start to wonder what this whole thing is about. And very naturally, a, a great and deep depression takes them over. When they're asked about the crucifixion afterwards, some of his disciples are quoted saying, we had hoped, we had hoped, that he was going to be the one to redeem it. But evidently not. Right? But evidently, but evidently, because he's dead, he, he can't be that person. We had hoped that all of these signs and wonders and miracles were pointing us to this Messiah, to this Savior figure, but evidently not. Prior to the resurrection, followers of Jesus had no reason to hope. And without a risen Christ, we don't either. Now, we all know the rest of the story. And this is about discipleship because it's at what is the core of discipleship. This resurrection is at the core of the identity of every follower of Jesus Christ. Because we know the rest of the story. Three days after his death, Jesus comes back from the grave and he begins appearing in bodily form to his disciples. We don't know that story because one person wrote about it and one person had an experience. We know that story because a multitude of witnesses saw and experienced the risen Christ and shared these stories back and forth, like double-blind. They had no idea that this had happened to the other person as well. They're sharing these stories. They are among the first witnesses of the resurrection, his first disciples. It's important that they witness the resurrection. And there were many more, like I say, than just his 12 that experienced it. But it was super, super important to these now 11 men, after Judas betrays Jesus, to actually witness the resurrection of Jesus. Because without it, there is no gospel. You understand? There is no identity that these followers of Jesus would have. They would be following a dead man. They would be following dead teachings. They, they weren't following a, a risen Lord. So for this reason, Jesus goes to great lengths to show himself to these 11 and to a number of other disciples as well, a number of other people who witness and see Christ's risen body. Like any of us, his disciples are understandably skeptical at the reports of his resurrection, and they need to see for themselves what this unbelievable claim is all about, right? When, 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 the, when the ladies come back and they're like, 
he's risen. I don't know how to explain it, but he's risen. This is what this is what we're dealing with. They're like, I don't know. They got to run. They got to see it. They got they have to experience this thing with their own hands. They need to know, right? Because they're they're skeptics. Perhaps no no one is more famous. Wouldn't it be a thing to be the apostle that's famous for for doubting? But Doubting Thomas, right? We know him as Doubting Thomas, one of the original 12. When Jesus appears to Thomas, Jesus allows Thomas to touch his wounds, and Thomas is forced to reconcile with the impossible. He is forced to believe what should be impossible. Many of us, I know, many of us long for the same kind of experience. We would have no problem signing up as disciples, as followers of Christ, if he appeared to us and said, here I am, put your hands in my wounds and see, see the, the hole in my side, see it, feel it, know it, know who I am, it's me. We, we would have a lot easier time following that Jesus that we could experience ourselves. Many of us long for that same experience and we're understandably disappointed when we don't get it. This, you see this when like you talk to people and they say, oh, I believe in God if, um, and then they fill in the blank, right? If, if my kid got better, if I pass the test next week, if I, if I make this goal, God, <laughs> I will believe. I will be a believer. Like we're always putting up this litmus test before God, right? We've all done it. But believing in the existence of God isn't the core of Christianity. Believing in existence of God is not at the core of who a disciple is necessarily. And I know that sounds a little bit weird to hear it that way, but in fact, I'm going to go even further. Believing in the existence of Jesus is not at the core of Christianity. This is not what makes a disciple or a follower of Christ. I think you know where I'm going. Believing that Jesus is who he said he was, believing that Jesus is who he said he was, and that our lives are necessarily altered by his resurrection. That, that is the core of a disciple. That is the core of Christianity. And it all rests on Jesus being raised from the dead, which is why in all of the New Testament accounts, this early church is just passing around this teaching that Christ raised from the dead. It was the, the big deal that changed everything, and everybody needed to know it. And you're supposed to guard this teaching, it says, and preserve this thing that you have been taught and go in the way of which you have been taught. It was like teaching was super central and passing on this truth was very, very central to all of this. So whether we touch the risen Christ or not, we still have an opportunity. We still have an opportunity to have our lives transformed by the risen Christ to have our lives transformed by the resurrection, which is why Jesus tells Thomas, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus knows these people are coming. That's in John 20, 29. He knows that we are coming. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We still have the opportunity to benefit from the resurrection, to have the resurrection make a significant impact in our lives. We do not get our own firsthand account of the resurrection, which I understand is frustrating for a lot of us. Um, instead, what we do get is the written down eyewitness accounts of everything that these early people saw and heard and a choice. We get to, we get to look at the, the records that they're giving us 
and then we get to make a choice. Because it doesn't have to happen to us for the resurrection to have happened. Does that make sense? It doesn't have to have happened to us for it to have happened in the past. And if it did happen in the past, it matters to us. It doesn't have to have happened to us for it to have mattered. And if it did happen in the past, it does matter to us. It does matter just as much as if it were to have happened to us. The implications are the same. The resurrection matters for the world today in a big way. Every disciple of Jesus followed the living Christ. It wasn't that the 12 disciples used to follow the living Christ, and then after he was killed, they followed his teaching. Because that, that religion, that whole system proved itself dead. It wasn't going to go anywhere. The disciples sunk into depression, and they wandered about not knowing what was going on. And then the resurrection happened, and it made a difference. Christianity is built on the reality of the living Christ, which means that if you call yourself a disciple of Christ today, that's just an if, you don't have to, but if you do call yourself a disciple of Christ today, you are following the living Christ. You are not following a, a set of rules or teachings necessarily. These are all things that he has given to us to follow in the Bible. This is his word that's been given to us. It's very special and very important for us to, to see and hear and have this account and have these eyewitness records, but we are following the living Christ. If you call yourself a disciple of Christ today, you are following the living Christ. And that is not easy. Excuse me, the old cliche, it's simple but not easy, does apply. In fact, Jesus seems to spend more time talking people out of following him than into it. Right? Which might be a bit of a relief for a lot of us in church today, right? Or a lot of us that have brushed up against the church today. One of Jesus' disciples, Luke, He's a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. He was so convinced about Jesus that he left his medical practice behind to follow after this new life that Jesus was offering. He walked away from all of this stuff. And he knew that it wasn't going to be easy. He knew it wasn't going to get easier after any of that. In his gospel record, he's the author of the Gospel of Luke and the very first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke tells this really interesting story. And by the time he's told the story about Jesus, on account of all the miracles that Jesus has been performing and the radical changes that people saw, all the good things that were happening, Jesus had gathered a pretty significant following. They wanted to be around the revolutionary, but not all of them were quite ready to be a part of the revolution. And Jesus was offering them, he was inviting them into more. But they needed to understand first something really important about following Christ. They needed to understand the cost of following him. So Luke says, and this is in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 25. In the Gospel of Luke 14, 25, he says, At that time, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Now, this is clearly different than following Jesus. Okay, So we have a picture of large crowds gathered around this person, right? traveling along with Jesus, but this is different than being a follower of Jesus. And so Jesus turns to these crowds who have been kind of tagging along on his coattails and watching all of this stuff happen. They're, they're witnesses of these same things. They can talk about Jesus with the same words that his disciples can talk about Jesus. They, they can explain the same events and the same significance of those events. They're, they're talking about the same thing, but they're not yet followers of Christ. And so he turns around and he has some pretty confrontational words. Now, I wish it wasn't so confrontational. I don't like it. 
None of us like the confrontation, but it leaves us with a choice. Nobody is forced into to saying yes to this, right? Jesus says, this is in, in chapter 14, verse 26 of Luke. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's not easy. Nobody likes to listen to that, right? This is not a popular message to preach today, but Jesus needs them to understand the cost of following him. What Jesus is saying is if these people desire to follow him and not just travel along behind him, they must prioritize this new way of life that they're going to follow him into above and beyond any other thing in their life. It has to be more important. There are nowhere, no places in the scriptures where Jesus says that you ought to like destroy all of these relationships. What he's doing is he's saying, this must be of utmost importance. Nothing can come before your decision to follow me. There is not father or mother, brother or sister, husband. Nothing is more important. All of these things must submit to this thing. Does that make sense? And this is a significant calling. It offers us a significant change of life and a significant kind of hope and a significant future, but it's not free. And Jesus needs those who are traveling with him to understand that. It's a significant calling with significant cost. He continues and he says, and, this is in verse 27, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. Okay, so they don't, they don't know about the cross necessarily coming up. This is the second time he mentions it in the gospel. And, and it has a powerful implication, does it not, when we consider Christ's cross. But all of these disciples would quite likely have seen a person or two carrying a cross with that telltale cadre of Roman soldiers behind them. And knowing that person is on a one-way journey. <laughs> they, don't get to, they don't get to pick that thing up and then put it down halfway and go, you know what? I don't think this thing is that important anymore. I'm going to turn around and go have lunch, I think, probably. Right? They have to take up their cross and follow. Christ is not making it easy. That's the point of all of this. And in a lot of ways, when we read these accounts, it feels today, <laughs> it feels like a good day to not call yourself a follower of Christ, which sounds like that's a crazy thing for a pastor to say, right? But I understand your hesitation. I understand why you might hesitate to do that. Jesus is encouraging you to hesitate. He's encouraging you to count the costs, to, to look at what you're doing and decide if this is something that you're willing to really do. If you desire to have that significant life, we must take a look at the significant costs that accompany it. This is one of, of the steps of, of a long journey of following Christ. But if you do call yourself a follower this morning, then it's a different, we have to read this differently, do we not? So if you've been convinced that you are following Christ in, in this life, we have to read these verses a lot differently. They say a different message to us than to those outside of that calling. Unless we're willing to take a serious look at the cost, we run the risk of looking back years from now and realizing that we've only ever just been one of the crowd traveling with Jesus. We've been around him. We've been around the, the hub of his activity. We've been coming to church on Sundays. We've been hearing the same teachings, and we can talk about it. We can do all of these things, but we have not yet followed Christ. 
if we do not count the cost first. So I would encourage each of you to count the cost and to look at this thing in that light to say, Lord, does my life need significant change? If it does need significant change, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, if it does need significant change, Christ has good news for you. He has a response that we that we get to we get to choose. Either either we will respond to this or we won't. Either either we'll come here and we'll continue to gather around it, and that's fine. It's a good place to be, but it's not the significant life that you're hoping for. And we know that, don't we? We feel that. Jesus isn't trying to make it harder than he is, but he does want his followers to know what they're in for. And so to illustrate it, he tells the crowd, he continues on, he tells the crowd of these would-be followers of his, he says, as, as, as he's traveling along with him, he says, suppose that one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Or if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying the person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Jesus' desire is to save us from this ridicule, yes, but hardship and insignificance also. He knows that we desire significance. He knows that, that we long to live significantly. And he's offering us an opportunity to do so. He's offering us an invitation into significance. But he doesn't want us to take that up without counting the cost, without first looking at it. So that in 30 years from now, or in 10 years from now, or in 5 years from now, we wouldn't have to look back on all those years and find that we had nothing more than a foundation for our whole life. That we had, we had this foundation of who Jesus was and the things that he taught, and we knew all those things, but we never decided to be a follower. If we want to build the house, we have to follow Jesus into a new and scary way of life. Jesus is suggesting it's wise to first count these costs. And we know, we know that it's costly, but as I said earlier, the calling to live significantly is a significant calling. The calling into a significant life it is, is heavy and it's hard and, it, and it's not going to necessarily be easy. And yet, when we open this service up, we talked about the easy yoke. And a way of peace. And we know that Christ has offered us support in all of this. He has offered us a way of, of stepping into this thing, of saying no to ourselves, of denying ourselves, and saying yes to him in this new life. That's the hard thing that's so hard for all of us to do, is to say no to ourselves, this, this, this dramatic act of self-denial, right? That's the cost we often don't consider. So we get down the road and we go, well, if I'd have known it was going to cost us all of this, if I'd have known it was going to cost me my evenings and weekends or all this extra money that I'm having to spend on, on Joe Blow or whatever the thing is, maybe I, maybe I would have made a different choice earlier on. Many Christians, and I've been guilty of this too, it's really easy for us to confuse knowing lots about Jesus with spiritual maturity. Those traveling with Jesus knew a lot about Jesus. They could tell the same stories. They had the same experiences. They saw the same miracles and wonders. Maturity is built by spending time following Jesus, not traveling alongside or, or looking at it from arm's length distance. Spiritual maturity is built when we spend time following Jesus, not just traveling with him. Over the next couple of weeks, 
we're going to look at the kind of transformation that comes with being a follower of Jesus. And I, and I want to invite everybody back here. You don't have to say, yeah, sign me up. I want to, I want to do this thing for sure. I'm going to do this radical transformation today. Maybe the first step is to just be, before we were followers, these people were gathering around. They were, they were traveling alongside. So you're welcome to come and travel alongside, okay? That message about being a follower and not a traveler is for people who are calling themselves followers of Christ. It's for, for us. But there is an invitation to come and see, to participate, that we could reach out with our, with our food, with our firewood, with our coffee, with all these things that we're doing as a church to reach out and show the world the love of Christ. As I said earlier, discipleship is that place where you are, and, and it's a place where who you are lines up with how you act. That's, there's, there's a lot of double living that happens around us, right? But discipleship is this, it is a call to follow Christ. It is to be a follower of Christ, and then that is, that is worked out in your actions and in your life. And this is the reason that it's central to this church. Jesus is not offering us a new set of beliefs. He's offering us an entirely new and significant way of life. And it's a big deal. If you're a longtime follower of Jesus, or if you've just joined the crowd for the first time, I want to encourage you to consider the areas of your life that would benefit from following a living Christ. What things feel dead? Are there parts of your life that need a resurrected Lord? They don't need more teachings and, and, and more knowledge that they need a living Christ? Does your marriage feel like, like just some dead afterthought after all of these years? Does it need the living Christ inside of it? Is it, is it calling you to be a disciple? If you're in school and you look around the halls at your high school, and you wonder how you might make an impact. Do the people that look at you, do they see a follower of Christ? Or do they see a, a person just, just traveling with the crowd? How are, how are you viewed? And how, how are you putting yourself into this life? Are you, are you accepting this call to be a disciple? And are you counting the cost? Maybe you're facing that retirement and it feels like the only significant work that you've had is now behind you. But the good news of the resurrection is that you have a real and a significant impact that is not in any way tied to your age or to this, this stage of life. In fact, as you grow in spiritual maturity, as you learn to be a follower of Christ, your, our need of you, the need of the next generation of you, grows with you. It becomes more and more substantial as the years go on. As a church, we believe that there is no better decision a person can make than to give their life to Christ and to be called his disciple. We also believe that this town has no greater future than a future that is full of encountering Christ's disciples and through him, his message of reconciliation and purpose, which is why our church is just all about this. All right? it's, it's the reason our leadership meets together to discuss how to do it better. Every week in our staff meetings, we talk about how we, can, how we can be more impactful, how we can do discipleship better. And it's the reason that we're going to spend the next three weeks exploring what it means for those who call themselves followers of Christ to follow Christ. And I would encourage you 
to make it out to these next couple of weeks, just to look at all of this with us. We're going we're gonna to get into this stuff and see what the Bible has to say. And I, and I know from experience that even just trying it, just trying, taking a step or two in that direction is, is a worthwhile experience. I would encourage you to be able to do that and to really examine the offer that Christ has before you and how it is that you might be able to walk more fully into that. But what a beautiful thing it is. What a beautiful transformation it would make in this town if that were true of each of Christ's followers, that they were disciples of his. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you give us a new and radical way to be alive, to engage in life, to be in relationship. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, reveal to us over the next weeks as we dive into your word, we ask God that you would be teaching us and drawing us in, that you would help us to make this, this step into following you. God, would, would you help us to see where we're at and help us to learn what it means to follow you more closely? And God, I just ask that the, the blessing of this would show up in people's lives as they, as they step out in, in brave obedience and faithfulness, Lord, that they would see uh, the beauty of your, your gift. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.